We normally begin our service at 9.30. We, on purpose, are starting late so that uh, we could let everyone get here and get a seat. For reasons I'll explain in a moment, we also normally begin our service with songs. But we're not beginning with the songs today because of the truth of a passage in the book of Proverbs that says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. And our congregation collectively has a heavy heart this morning because of the passing of a dearly loved and faithful brother in the Lord. Most of you have heard because you received my several emails yesterday and last night. I apologize for having to deliver this news now to those who may not have heard. But Vince Muscat Sr. was involved in a car accident mid-afternoon yesterday. And the Lord called his son to himself just after 9 o'clock last night. So we are just over 12 hours removed from this shocking news. And that was preceded by a roller coaster of events at the hospital for the six hours or so that he was there. As those reports went from the initial news of his condition, which appeared to be treatable, to the word of internal bleeding, and so then some cause for concern. But then that was treated by a surgical procedure, and so all looked promising once again. And then the news came of a brain hemorrhage, and then his passing. And all of that very quickly, and also very unexpected by us. But all on the Lord's perfect timetable. And as Kim comforted a family member last night at the hospital, she rightly reminded them that this was Vince's time. And we all have a time on God's calendar. We all have an appointment that all of us will keep. And so this morning, we're not having our normal order, starting with the songs, though we will sing songs later. And we're also suspending our series in the book of Revelation one week. We'll pick that up next week. We're rearranging all of that to focus on what this event begs us to consider. Namely, the time that God gives us and how we should use it. So I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And you'll need a Bible. And so the guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. Get their attention if you need a Bible. Philippians 1. We started late so that any late comers could be seated past 9.30. Because usually if you're a late comer, you're coming in while we're standing for songs. Today, if you're a late comer, you're coming in while we're all seated. So we started later for that purpose. Philippians 1. People who choose to work extremely hard at something always do so because they think doing it is worthwhile. And I say choose to work hard because it's possible for one to work hard but do so not by their own choice. A slave, for instance. But if we choose to work extremely hard, it's because we've decided that it's worth it. A marathon runner will train for his or her 26-mile race by running multiple times a day, often uphill and in pain. They'll adopt a diet that involves a good deal of self-denial, and they'll stay with it because there's a prize at the end, and for them it's worth it. A mom will stay up at night with her little one consoling the colicky baby and singing to her even though she's dead tired because the baby's well-being is worth it. Accomplishing anything worthwhile means that some other things are going to be forfeited in favor of the end that you're trying to achieve. And those sacrifices are put into perspective when compared to the attainment of the purpose. And all of this is true in the life of the Christian. You will evaluate all the things that you do, and you'll evaluate all the things that happen to you, 
in light of your purpose. In light of the purpose of pleasing Christ in what he has assigned to you. And we see this in the life of the great Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 of the 27 books in your New Testament. One of those is 2 Corinthians. And in it, he said this. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That is, he's saying, all the difficulty that I've endured, including being beaten to the point of death, is worth it to me because it all fits into the purpose of advancing the gospel of Christ and becoming more like Christ in the process. Now, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 that we're going to see in a moment, he's under house arrest. He's imprisoned for preaching the gospel. But he brings his Christian perspective to this trial, as with all others, seeing it as worth it. Because it, like all other things that happen to him, is designed by God for God's glory, for the progress of the gospel, and for Paul's ultimate good. In fact, in the paragraph just prior to the one that we're going to consider this morning, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, to assure them that despite the fact that he's in prison, and while some of even his professing Christian brothers are using it against him, he says still in those verses, all's good. Now why? Because the purpose of the gospel is being achieved. In verse 18, he says this, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. And at the very end of verse 18, he moves from his present circumstance to thinking about what might happen in his uncertain future, and still his perspective is the same. End of verse 18. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So why? Why all this rejoicing in the midst of these difficult circumstances? Verse 19 begins to provide the reason. Because it starts with the word, For, because, because I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. This teaches us a couple of things that we need to know, and we need to know in this hour, especially the first is this, that we should live with the goal in mind. Now, we normally have The outline inserted for you in your program, the outline you have inserted today, is for the message that I was going to do from Revelation chapter 2. So you don't have a printed outline. You can write on the back of the one we gave you, if you'd like. But live with the goal in mind. Now he says, all of this is going to turn out for my deliverance. And the word that's translated deliverance is the word in your New Testament that's translated salvation. All of this is going to, you could say, turn out for my salvation. But there are three aspects to salvation. We need to be reminded of that. The Bible says, for example, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed. And so that's the gospel of your, the good news of your deliverance, the good news of your salvation. And there was a point in time, if you're a Christian, where you heard that good news and you responded to it. And as a result of that, you were saved, rescued, delivered. That was the initial point of our salvation. That's the way we normally think of it. But the Bible goes on to say this in Ephesians 2, you have been saved. And that's written in the present tense. We are being saved. So in chapter 1, we have been saved, but we are still being rescued. We are still being saved. It's like what Paul said elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, as you have always obeyed, continue to work out your deliverance, your salvation, your rescue with fear and trembling. In the present, you are now being delivered and rescued from your sin and its effects. So we have been, we are And then the Bible says our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That is our ultimate deliverance, our ultimate rescue. And so you can and should think of your salvation this way. I am saved and I am being saved and I will be saved. 
Ultimately, all that God allows in our lives here, this contributes to the road that God has chosen for each of us individually on the way to our final destination. And that's goal is found in verse 21. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, in order for that to happen, in order for us to see life that way through a Philippians chapter one and verse 21 lens, we need to do a few things. First, see every event as part of the goal, as leading to the goal. Verse 19 says, what's happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, for my salvation. And when verse 19 says, what has happened to me, it's the same wording as back in verse 12 of chapter 1. What has happened to me, verse 12, has actually served to advance the gospel. So that's a mouthful. What has happened to me, says Paul. All of this is going to serve to advance the gospel. It's going to serve for my ultimate salvation, deliverance. But what all has happened to him? Well, that goes back into the book of Acts, the fifth book of your New Testament, which records the journeys, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And it tells us that he left a city called Ephesus and he decided to travel to Jerusalem to preach the gospel despite warnings of danger awaiting him there. And indeed, he did encounter danger, even a plot against his life. So he was whisked away at night to Caesarea under protection of a Roman magistrate, but also under house arrest to determine whether his preaching constituted any violation of Roman law. And he was there for two years. And he ultimately appealed to Caesar, which is why he's in Rome under house arrest now when he writes this letter of Philippians to the church at Philippi. His travel to Rome included a shipwreck and near death. And now he sits awaiting an uncertain verdict from the emperor. All of that's contained in this phrase, what has happened to me in verse 12. And now that phrase is repeated in verse 19. I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. But there's no reason for Paul to limit his confidence to only deliverance from what's most recently happened. He says he knows that this is going to work out. And he has good reason to know not only that this will turn out for his deliverance, but everything will turn out for his deliverance and for ours. Now, how do we know that? The Bible has a bunch of we knows, things things we know to be true. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to say in that passage that those God has predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Four things there, predestined, called, justified, glorified. All of them written in the past tense. Three of the four, the first three, have in fact happened in the past if you're a Christian. Predestined, called, and justified. But that fourth one, glorified, I have that highlighted for you. Because it's written in the past tense, yet it hasn't happened yet. And how can God do that? How can God say something that in the future is to happen as as if it's already taken place? Because in the mind of God, our ultimate deliverance, our ultimate salvation is as good as done. So I don't know, and you don't know. And as we'll see, Paul did not know how the present circumstances that we're in how the present circumstance he was in would precisely turn out. Only the Lord Lord knows that. But Christians do know how it will ultimately turn out. We will be delivered by the realization of our final salvation, our final deliverance. And that's why in chapter 1 and verse 6 of Philippians, Paul said famously being confident of this, That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And so one commentator said, each item in Paul's experience is but another of the Father's finishing touches. And all will result in the full enjoyment of salvation. There is a sure faith for Paul 
and for us also. The Christian need never fear the outcome of events. Life brings its daily pressures. Many of them are unexpected. Often they seem uncalled for. From time to time they are traceable to the evil of wicked people. But God is overall. And there is no point in believing in a sovereign God if He can be tumbled off the throne by what happens to us or what is done by us. After all, He controls all of that too. So John Calvin said, all things contribute to the advantage of God's true worshipers. All things. The ultimate deliverance, our final salvation, friends, is inevitable. But it's not automatic. There are means to that end, including what verse 19 says. The prayers of God's people. I know that through your prayers, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. You see, the reason that God responds to the prayers of His people is that when He provides what has been requested, He's the one who gets the credit. And as I said last week, when we were talking about our church's prayers for many months for little Kaylee Fallett, who's out of the hospital and God has been gracious to that little girl and to her family, but many, many people praying for her. But why many people? Why do we covet the prayers of many? The more prayers he answers, hear this, the more praise he receives. The Bible says, on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Many pray so that many can praise. And God then supplies what's needed by His Holy Spirit. Verse 19 says, this deliverance will come through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now that phrase, God's provision of the Spirit, can probably should be translated the help given by the Spirit. That is, it's not the Spirit that's being given because Paul and every believer already has the Holy Spirit. Rather, it's the Lord responding to our prayers to provide the Spirit's help. So although he's going to be delivered, certainly, because he will be saved and he will receive his reward, though it's inevitable, it's still not automatic. It involves the means of prayer and the Spirit's help. Paul's continued obedience to the Lord. So friends, we should see every event as leading to the goal. And we should also make every effort to attain the goal. Because in verse 20 of chapter 1, it says this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed... But I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Those two words, eagerly expect, are one word in Greek that has three elements to it. Away, the head, to watch. Away, the head, to watch. Combined, they give the idea of watching something with the head turned away from other objects. To put it another way, it means Paul's determined not to be distracted from Christ and the gospel by anything else. By politics, by sports, by job, by conspiracies, the list goes on. This eager expectation rests upon, he says, the hope, verse 20. Hope in the New Testament doesn't mean what we mean. We mean, I'd like it if something happened, but I don't know for sure if it will. I hope I'll get a particular Christmas gift. I hope Michigan will beat Ohio State by three touchdowns. That's hope for something you want to happen, but you don't know that it will. But in the Bible, hope is something that's certain, though the timing may be uncertain. You know it's going to happen, you just don't know when. Paul knows he's going to be delivered, he's going to be saved, he's going to be rescued. He just does not know when. But because he knows for sure that he will be rescued, he keeps his eye on the prize and he determines to do what verse 20 says. I will not be ashamed. I'll maintain a clear conscience while I'm fulfilling my calling to represent Christ in both word and deed. So that, verse 20, he'll have sufficient courage, that is, boldness in his speech in proclaiming the gospel. 
And he also expects that he'll have an unblemished record of service to the Lord in verse 20. Now, as always. The result of all of this, a singular focus on Christ that's based on a certainty that the Lord will bring us safely home whenever he determines means that it affects, friends, the way we live. I'm living out my calling. I'm living as an ambassador of Christ. I'm determined to do so to the end. And the result is at the end of verse 20. Christ will be exalted in my body. Notice whether by life. Or by death. Christ will be exalted. That word means he will be made large. The Greek word is the word from which we get our English word mega from. To make Christ large. To make him obvious. To have him exalted in my life. So here in the life of Paul is someone who's living with the ultimate goal in mind as we are to do. And secondly... We're to live with the end goal in mind and we're to live with others in mind. Christian hope makes the outcome certain, but it leaves open both the time of fulfillment and the means by which that goal is going to be reached. And so at the end of verse 20, Paul can do no more than express alternative possibilities, either life or death. He knows nothing of the future other than it's going to be one or the other. And it's clear which one he wants. Life or death? Which one does he want? Verse 21. To die is gain. Verse 23. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. To die is gain. What a marvelous thing to be able to say that. And when he says... To die is gain in verse 21. It's the same word that he'll use later in chapter 3 and verse 7. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them a loss that I may gain Christ. In those verses in chapter 3, Paul was looking back to the day when Christ became everything to him. And he had added up all that might have been counted as valuable in his life And he had found Christ worth more than everyone and everything. And he gladly surrendered all to and for him. And since Christ is the most important to him, then he desires to be with Christ. And that's why in verse 23 he says, to depart and be with Christ is better by far. You see, friends, that's what Christian death is. It's a departure. This may well be, when he says to depart, it may well be Paul using a camping metaphor. As many of you know, Paul was a tent maker. And so he resorts to the language of his trade, describing life for the Christian as at best a transitory thing, a temporary thing, a kind of camp life in which we travel this life on our way to our permanent resting place. And the Bible actually speaks of it this way. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. There's coming a day for the Christian when camp life is exchanged at death for home life with Christ. And that happened last night for our brother Vince. And this exchange of camp life here to home life with Christ is better by far. Suppose we had been with Paul in Rome just then and had seen him as he was, a man of immense vigor and mind in mind and body, who had enormous gifts, a man irreplaceable in the church. Think about how deeply we would have felt the loss were he to be executed. What an untimely death. And all the other things we hear said when a notable Christian dies unexpectedly. But how would Paul have seen it? Paul's not the loser. It's not poor Paul. For him, it's better by far than anything else that could have happened or could be imagined. 
Indeed, even while the church mourned his loss, he would possess unimaginable riches. For him, as for us, as for Vince, at our death, it is far better. So, do you live like you plan on staying here? I recently read a faithful pastor's comment saying one of the best thing a preacher can do is to instill in his people the importance of living with eternity in view. But despite that as Paul's desire, he's willing to remain on earth if that's what the Lord has for him. Now why? Because he's not living for himself but for others, including and especially other Christians. So if we're going to live this life with others in mind, it needs, means we need to, like Paul, be willing to give our lives for others. Verse 22. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. That is, I'm willing to put aside what I want for what's best for you. If that's what the Lord desires, which I can only know later. He does this because he loves them. Paul thinks this way because he loves Christ and he loves what's important to Christ. He loves Christ's people. Remember, love is doing what's in the best interest of another. I heard a story a few years ago that I related to you sometime back about the great theologian and apologist, the late Cornelius Van Til. In seminary, I read Van Til's books, and he was a brilliant, brilliant man. But this is what was said in the story. The one telling it said, it, it is very nearly four decades since, as a terribly callow graduate student with an interest in philosophy, I made a pilgrimage with a friend to the home of a professor of Christian apologetics, I was looking for direction, and even though Cornelius Van Til had been retired for many years, he was known to welcome inquirers, whom he often greeted on his front porch with a rake in hand, suggesting that perhaps they could pile up his leaves for him before they, before they talked. I was hoping to hear an intimidating, intellectually convoluted, scholastic, metaphysical strategy for blowing the philosopher's version of Gideon's trumpet. Van Til, then pushing 80, stood with his hard white comb of hair brushed back with his cliff-like brow and the smile of an old Dutch dairy farmer, which his father had been. And I asked Dr. Van Til, why did you decide to devote your life to the study of philosophy and the teaching of apologetics? And then I sat back to allow the metaphysics free room to roll. Van Til never blinked. Why, he said, to protect Christ's little ones. The surprise that could have dropped me to the floor that afternoon has never quite evaporated. Why? To protect Christ's little ones. Not only because those words express a great nobility in a few syllables, but because remembering them, they cast down every castle of intellectual folly I erect or am tempted to erect. And because at the end, I am not worthy of them. And because anyone who understands that the kingdom of God is our true home, that God's people are truly our people, and that this world, by turns indifferent and hostile to both, must see those words as a true reminder of what we owe to each other as Christians and in what relation we stand to each other. Notice, friends, God's people are indeed God's. They are Christ's little ones. So living for them, in doing that, you are living for Him. Be willing to give your life for others. And then lastly, be willing thereby to give your life for Christ. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, in the previous verses, he's expressed uncertainty about whether he'll live or die. But now he's saying he's convinced he'll have more time to minister to them. 
His being convinced has to be just a personal conviction rather than a revelation from God. Had God told him he would not die, then there would have been no discussion about this uncertainty. He's simply saying it's his personal conviction that his work on earth is not done. So in the words of the great evangelist George Whitfield, mortals are immortal here until their work is done. So friends, in the life of the great apostle Paul, and in the life of our dear brother Vince, we're reminded of what's important. What we should live for, and therefore as a result, how we should be ready to die. I loved Vince Muscat. And I loved what he brought to me personally and what he brought to this church. Just this past week, just this past weekend, last Saturday, he sent me a text. And in the text, he told me how geeked he was about the fact that we were having communion the next day. He was looking forward to being with God's people And observing the Lord's table together. And then after service last Sunday. He's out in the lobby and he comes up to me and he is floating on cloud nine. And he just says, I'm just so glad that I could be here. And I just love this church so much. And I love you. And we embraced one another. He was on cloud nine then. He's above the clouds now. He's with the Lord. His life and his death was one like we've seen today in the life of the great apostle Paul. And so when I went to the hospital last night for the third time, and Vince had just passed, Vinny was waiting to direct me to his room at the elevator when I got out of the elevator, there's Vinny. We embraced, and Vinny says to me, he's dancing now. You know, he had that car accident, he had those broken bones, but none of that matters now. He's dancing now. And then we went to the room, and I related that to some of the family. And they looked kind of puzzled, and they said, I don't think I want to see that. He really, he really can't dance. <laughs> thanks, thanks be to our God. Through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that one could die with that legacy, with the family seated here, carrying on that legacy, who in the faith, face of sorrow, deep emotion, and deep hurt, And still laugh in the face of death. Oh death where is your sting? Oh grave where is your victory? It's been overcome. By the Lord Jesus Christ. We live that way. We die that way. And so your take home truth is. Everything. Is to be focused on Christ. Now, I'm ready to sing. Tears of thankfulness, tears of joy, but now I'm ready to sing. So I'm going to ask the musicians if you guys will come. And our musicians had picked the songs for this week. Of course, not knowing what yesterday would bring. But in God's providence, the songs chosen, I looked them over. And they fit quite well, I think, with what it is that uh, we need to focus our minds upon. So we're going to sing two of those songs. We're going to have our regular order, our announcements and our offering and so on. Then we'll have another couple of songs as well. Let's stand together as we sing. We're going to sing a song this morning called Christ the Shore and Steady Anchor. And um, we haven't sung it as a congregation yet, so I'm just going to sing through one verse. And then we're all going to sing it together. You've heard it several times. We've played it. Um, So I'll sing it now and then you guys can join.
Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sins have all been torn in the suffering in the sorrow when my sinking hopes are few I will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be removed Christ the shore of our salvation ever faithful ever true we will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be sing Christ the sure and steady anchor together this morning. to the anchor 
before the Lord. God, the Son, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are the victor. By your death and life and resurrection, you are victorious over all things and all people, so that you are the Lord of the living and of the dead, and you are the coming King of kings. Lord, we will sing this morning of your having conquered every sting of death. You've conquered death itself, 
We've conquered also all that accompanies it. Sickness and disease and aging and brokenness and tears. So that we look forward to the time when the victory that you have already achieved will be fulfilled. As your word tells us, you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We look forward to those stings being finally removed. And we anticipate the reunion with those for whom you have done this, our brothers and sisters in you. We dearly miss them and deeply long to see them. But most of all, we desire to be with you. We believe with the great apostle that it is better by far to depart and to be with you. But we gladly carry out for you the work that you have for us until you call us home. Until then, because we love you, we love what you love, your people and your mission. So thank you for this time to be reminded of these truths and for using them to comfort our hearts. And we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. want to mention some things that are coming up in the life of our church uh, very briefly. And then we will receive our weekly offering as an act of worship to the Lord. First, let me say welcome to our guests and thank you for your indulgence to our church family today because of this uh, untimely event from our perspective, the loss of our brother. But we are delighted that God had as his appointment for you to be with us today, and we hope that you will be back with us next week, and we'll continue our series in the book of Revelation. In the meantime, we've tried to make it easy for you as a guest to let us know how we can help you. You should have received a program on the way in, and if you open that up on the right side, there's a portion that at the top says connection card. You can tear that off. You can fill that out. Let us know what you would like to know more about, and we'll respond according to your wishes. We're going to pass some baskets throughout the congregation here in just a bit. You can place that in there if you like, or you can use what's on the screen there. You can text the word welcome to the number there, 388-4466. You'll get a link back. You click on that, and you can easily fill out that connection card that way. Whether or not you want to do that, out in the lobby, we have a desk. Stop by there. Just say this is my first time, and they'll give you a gift as a token of appreciation for being our guest. Just very quickly for our church, some things that are coming up tonight. We uh, have our community groups, our home groups that meet on the first and third Sundays of, uh, of each month, and so those will be meeting tonight. Those that meet on Grozeal, the uh, free bridge is closed, and so our group meets normally on Grozeal. We're not because we can't really get over there. The pay bridge, one, we don't want to pay. Two, it <laughs> takes an hour to get across it, I'm told. And so we're meeting, our group is meeting at the Brinkley's if there are other groups that meet on Grozeal then you may have other arrangements as well. Ladies, our, the Christmas social is coming up in just a few weeks on Friday the 6th. For that, we already have all the uh, uh, volunteers we need for hosting tables, so thank you, ladies, for doing that. There's a meeting for those who have volunteered to do that immediately after our service here. It's going to be in adult classroom number three that's out the back door and across the hallway. So, ladies, if you've volunteered to host a table, then as soon as we're done here, go out that back door, go to adult classroom three, they're going to have coffee and bagels already in there for you, so you don't have to deal with the crowd out in the, the lobby. You can go straight to that meeting. For the rest of you ladies, we simply now over the next week or so need you to register to say that you're coming. Uh, so there's registration for that. We do need to know who all is coming for it. And registration instructions are in the middle panel of your program down at the bottom, or you see you can text the word register to that same number that we showed earlier. Finally, mark your calendars for Sunday the 15th of December. That's our annual adult Christmas fellowship, and we always have a great time for that. All right, guys, if you'll come forward, we're going to worship the Lord through the active giving. Those of you who are guests do not feel obligated to give. Just pass the basket to the person next to you. May the Lord bless you as you give.
God's word tells us in John chapter 11 about the death of Lazarus. And we read there, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will live even though they die. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Because this is true, we can stand and sing praise to our God by singing how great thou art. And then we'll conclude with Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. I invite you to stand.
Christ is risen, he's risen indeed, a song that proclaims our Messiah's resurrection. Would you sing with us this morning, Christ is risen. Our hearts to live His grace. 